It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello. Good morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. How much of our poor health is really our fault? We love to blame a crisis on personal responsibility. Global warming isn't about industrial pollution. It's about you not recycling your water bottles. Auto safety isn't about the engineering of cars. It's about the nut behind the wheel. The housing crisis isn't about predatory lending. It's about you taking out a mortgage you couldn't handle. In the new book, The Commercial Determinants of Health, public health experts tackle America's health crisis by examining the social, political, and corporate influences that shape our lives. And they question whether public health in America is ultimately determined by our personal choices or the fact that we're surrounded by corporate marketing campaigns for junk food, we're exposed to polluted air, we can't afford to see a doctor, or we live in a food desert. Our first guest, Dr. Nason Mani, explores these issues as one of the editors of The Commercial Determinants of Health. Then we'll welcome back journalist Chris Hedges to discuss his recent article, Woke Imperialism, where in the wake of the murder of Tyree Nichols by a so-called elite unit of Memphis police officers, Hedges highlights the tension between class politics and identity politics. Ralph is also going to give a short commentary on Joe Biden's State of the Union speech. And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, who's responsible for your health woes? Is it the system or is it you? David? Nason Mani is a lecturer in inequalities and global health policy at the University of Edinburgh. He is also the host of Money Power Health, a podcast on how our health is influenced by commercial forces, wealth, and power. He is co-editor of the new book, The Commercial Determinants of Health. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Dr. Nason Mani. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome indeed, Dr. Mani. Listeners should know this is quite a remarkable book. It has about 30 contributors from all kinds of disciplines, economic, engineering, science, psychology, you name it. So it's very broad and it's revolutionary in its scope, even though its language is more evolutionary. And we're going to get into some of the details. But I'm sure the first question is obvious, Dr. Mani, what do you mean by the commercial determinants of health? Yeah, that's a really good question. In general terms, we mean the activities of the private sector that shape population health. And the term kind of emerges from an understanding that our health is largely shaped by forces outside of healthcare, by the quality of the air we breathe, the wealth of our parents growing up, the pollution in our neighborhood, how close our house was to roads, These are the the forces that account for 20-year gaps in life expectancy between neighborhoods. And those have been termed over the last 20 years or so the social determinants of health. But I guess what's becoming apparent is that a lot of those forces are shaped by the activities of the private sector, in particular large internationally consolidated global corporations. And that's where the term the commercial determinants of health came from, just to acknowledge the upstream ways in which our health and how we think about our health is shaped by the activities of commercial actors. And you're very specific here. You have in section three, you have case studies by industry written by different experts. One is on the alcohol industry, 
the others on the tobacco industry, a third is on the oil, gas, and coal industries, the fourth is on the exploding gambling industry, and the fifth is on the sugar-sweetened beverages that are directed to youngsters, and turning, as my mother once said, turning their tongues against their brain in terms of taking in junk food and drink, which are very bad for them, that are directly marketed to these children, circumventing parental authority and guidance, which is a very radical move in the last 40 years. They never used to do that years ago. That would be considered anti-cultural norm to undermine parents and sell bad things, including violent programming directly to children. So what you're saying is that the language is changing. It used to be social indicators. That was kind of a euphemism in the sense that it didn't really focus on giant corporations that are strategically planning just about everything in the lives of people around the world. That's what they do. They strategically plan because they like control. They don't like indeterminate environments that they can't plan for. So why don't you tell us, when you edited this book published by Oxford University Press with Mark Pettigrew and Sandro Galea, those are your two co-editors, Did you find any controversy as to how strong or weak the language is? Because there is a language of avoidance among academics. They don't like to use words like corporate crime, corporate coercion, corporate welfare. They use words like white-collar crime. Even law professors have not really gotten on board here. There aren't that many courses on corporate crime more than years ago, but at law schools around the country. Did you have any disagreements? Because you have all these viewpoints, they have a lot of facts, they come to various conclusions, but did you find they were all on the same page, or did you find people who didn't want to go as far as you thought the facts and norms would guide them to go, or people who were too extreme in their condemnation? How'd you pull them all together? (laughs) That's a really good question. There is certainly some diversity in viewpoints, and that partly reflects people's own positions and biases. It partly reflects the type of research discipline they come from, of course. But what we hope to do with the book was try and bring as wide a diversity of perspectives, of types of evidence that relate to the direct and indirect effects of these companies together. And I think, actually, if you look back, historically, there's been some really good work on, for example, the activities of the tobacco industry, or even work on the coal industry, or the asbestos industry, or the work you did yourself on the car industry, right? Unsafe at any speed. But what often happens is some of this work happens in silos. So you had whole conferences and groups of academics focused on the tobacco industry, whole journals dedicated to that topic, and then whole separate groups of advocates, academics, focused on the alcohol industry or alcohol in general, right? And I guess the the idea of the commercial determinants of health as a lens, and what we hope to do in the book, was show that these forces have strong parallels between them. They use similar strategies sometimes, language, third-party organizations. Often the staff themselves are interchangeable at the top. And because of that, these are forces that science should bear witness to. 
Like the same way we bear witness to physical forces like gravity, we should be able to bear witness to commercial forces and describe the ways in which they influence the world. Part of the way of overcoming challenges of ideological difference was just to say, look, our role as scientists is to bear witness to these forces, to measure them, to predict them, and to allow society to make decisions about what is and isn't appropriate. But first of all, we have to acknowledge it. And the final thing I would say related to that is a lot of science simply doesn't acknowledge this, right? So there are some really good researchers who've done work on the role of bias from commercial funding in research, but there are lots of other researchers who largely avoid commenting on it, right? Or sometimes don't declare conflicts of interest very well themselves. So I think it's, it's almost the elephant in the room in some aspects of science, and it's good to bring it to the surface. Well, there's also interesting differences. I should say to our listeners that a number of the contributors distinguish between talking about giant global corporations and small business. They're really not talking about small business. As I've said in prior programs, the giant corporations are not only different in degree from small companies, they're different in kind. They have a completely different dimension of privilege, immunity, uh, not to mention impact transnationally astride the globe. I looked in the index, which I often do when I read new books, and I didn't see an entry for children. And what has been quite prominent over the decades, once they direct market to children and undermine parental authority, it's a half a trillion dollar industry in the U.S., direct marketing to children, is, is that they're extraordinarily cruel to children. They tempt, seduce, and addict them whether it's the addiction of junk food, which has been documented to be an addiction, not just something that's sweet. Addiction to the internet gulag, five, six hours exposed to all kinds of harmful influences, violent programming, commercial exploitation, intrusion on personal information of these youngsters, uh, making them sign fine print contracts where they give up their rights. And this is paralleled by, in our country, the the Republican Party, which has opposed extension of child tax credits that cut child poverty by a third in the early months of the Biden administration. They oppose regulating pesticides that are especially cruel to developing bodies of young children. They insist on junk food being put in school lunch programs. They oppose what you have in your country, paid family leave, paid child care, on and on. Do you think enough attention was paid on the impact on children? I mean, these companies now are strategically planning our genetic inheritance. They have thousands of patents on gene sequences, for example. Companies like Monsanto or Bayer, who, who bought it, are into that area as well. What's your view? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And certainly, there's a commonality in strategy with regards to children as a market. And that was true in the context of tobacco, where most smokers began smoking before the age of 18. And advertising was acknowledged internally as a really important way to ensure brand loyalty at a quite young age. Similarly, in research we've done on internal alcohol industry advertising case studies, um, you see them talk and worry about replacing the heavy drinkers of today. They're super consumers, and they talk about how they're going to recruit the heavy drinking loyalists of tomorrow. That was a direct quote from one of their internal documents. So I think you're right, and we could have probably uh, focused more attention children specifically 
but really it cuts across a huge swathe of these companies and the way in which they choose to protect and grow future revenue. One area that we've done some research on recently, which is particularly concerning, is how industry-funded charities are allowed entrance into schools to promote framings of problems and solutions that align closely with their other strategic interests. So a recent paper led by a colleague of mine looked at the way in which alcohol industry-funded charities were presenting their education programs to schools on alcohol. And those programs were very, very selective in what they focused on. They talked about, you know, learning how to drink properly, making sure that, you know, children know how much is in a unit of alcohol and the historical legacy of, of alcohol and, and the, the ingredients in it. But they wouldn't reference alcohol marketing or the role of the alcohol industry, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think that's, and that's not just the case for alcohol. We find that in other sectors. And it's eerily familiar with earlier examples where when the Lorax came out <laughs> and there was a very strong sort of increase in interest in environmentalism, that there was like a logging association that produced a children's book to counteract the Lorax called the Truax that spoke about the value of the logging industry and framed the Lorax as kind of a, you know, a goody two shoes who doesn't know what the real world is like. Well, I think people in our country who are older remember Paul Bunyan, who's a fictional creature of the lumber industry. And they got into all the schools, they actually had little stories, pamphlets distributed. And I remember one that Paul Bunyan was a fictional character alleged to have been born in Maine. And when he was born, he was 200 pounds. And anyway, when he grew up, he became a lumberjack and connected with the, the great blue ox and set out cutting down trees. And so they had all these pamphlets watching Paul Bunyan go across country laying waste to forests. And when he finished off trees in Montana, he was heading for Alaska. And the last line of the book was, and Paul Bunyan and the blue ox will continue until the last tree is down. How about that one? For <laughs> generations of American elementary school students, and we were never told the truth, of course. And these companies, we did a report over 40 years ago on commercialism in the classroom, and they have the nuclear power industry, the coal industry, trying to lure the boys in the classroom into the coal mines without mentioning the horrific exposure to coal miner pneumoconiosis, which has killed hundreds of thousands of coal miners over the last century or more. Yeah, it's very much that way. You know, in looking at your topics, you have one called industry influence on science. There is a big difference between corporate science and academic science in terms of disclosure and peer review. You have one on role in trade deals and investment. You have one on the role of corporations influencing culture. And you co-authored one called Commercial Determinants of Health in Low- and Middle-Income Countries. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so there, there's actually quite, quite a lot of literature on the role of corporations um, and how they affect health in, in different national contexts. And what's important to note is that depending on where you're based and what level of protections you have at the national level and also what your own socioeconomic status is or employment rights are, you experience the harms of commercial actors very, very differently. I mean, it's very rare that I would hear someone in the US or the UK look at their laptop and think, 
hmm, you know, that's harming health right there. But if you're in the supply chain for the raw materials for that laptop, or you're, you happen to be in the factory where that laptop's being put together in a different country, in a different setting, that, that company may be having huge impacts on your health, not necessarily positive. Um, and the same is true when we look at research in, in South America, for example, um, that's looked at efforts to improve employment rights. And they almost have a completely different view of what commercial determinants of health is there because they have a strong legacy of seeking to push back. There's one chapter that really stood out, and I want to go into it in some detail. It's called Corporations as Irresponsible Artificial People, Human Rights, Profits, and Public Health. It was written by one of your colleagues who teaches at Boston University School of Public Health, George Ennis. And I want to read a section from this because it really goes to the root of how long can people tolerate giant corporations being at all compatible with a democratic society. I have just wrote a, another recent article on that subject. Uh, corporations have been given equal rights in our country. They're persons, and they have vast wealth, power, control over capital, labor, technology, politicians. So it's no contest between real human beings and giant corporations. And they're given all kinds of privileges under bankruptcy law, fine print contracts, access to the courts, all kinds of double standards that take the equal rights fiction by the Supreme Court of the United States and turn it into tyranny and domination. So Professor Annis digs right into this, and he says, and I want to quote him and then get your view on this. He quotes Justice of the Supreme Court, John Paul Stevens, in the notorious Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission case in 2010 that allowed corporations to spend unlimited money for or against candidates running for public office, as long as they didn't coordinate with any campaign. And Justice Stevens wrote a historic dissent, and he went right to the nub of it when he said in dissent, quote, corporations have no consciences, no beliefs, no feelings, no thoughts, no desires. Their personhood often serves as a useful legal fiction, but they are not themselves members of, quote, we the people, quote, by whom and for whom our Constitution was established, end quote. The conceit that corporations must be treated identically to natural persons in the political sphere is not only inaccurate, but also inadequate to justify the court's disposition of this case. And Professor Annis quotes legal philosopher Ronald Dworkin, who says, quote, The argument that corporations must be treated like real people under the First Amendment is, in my view, preposterous. Corporations are legal fictions. They have no opinions of their own to contribute, no rights to participate with equal voice or vote in politics, end quote. And then he, he gives a devastating example of the double standard. Most people I know cannot create their own parents. Corporations create their own holding companies for evasive purposes, tax evasion, regulation evasion. Most people cannot create thousands of subsidiaries lodged in files in the Grand Cayman Islands or some other tax haven. But this is what happens when you give corporations the equal rights of persons. I'm going to quote Professor Annis. He said, Pfizer was fined $1.2 billion dollars by the federal government for fraudulently marketing Bextra. Federal law required that any company found guilty of such a crime 
be automatically excluded from the Medicare and Medicaid programs. But government prosecutors thought that this would lead to the collapse of Pfizer, which they considered too big to fail. Accordingly, the prosecutors approved the plan in which a Pfizer subsidiary corporation called Pharmacia and Upjohn would plead guilty to this crime, pay the fine, and be excluded from Medicare and Medicaid. The parent company, Pfizer, would continue doing its business as usual, end quote. Here's my question, and we're talking with Nason Manny, who is one of the co-editors of this new book, The Commercial Determinants of Health by Oxford University Press. Good gift to libraries, listeners, in addition to your own circle of friends. Here's my question. This goes right to the fundamental issue as to whether corporations should be subordinated, not equal, subordinated constitutionally to the supremacy of the rights and remedies of human beings. That is, they would not be allowed as corporations to lobby, to fund campaigns, etc. Individuals working in companies could do that, but not the corporate entity itself. You think this message is reverberating through all those contributors in your book. Did this chapter particularly bring them down to basic fundamental change in the way a political economy has to be organized? You know, I wish I could say that it had, but I'm not sure. First of all, I know Professor Annis is going to be thrilled that you quoted from his chapter. Um, he devoted a lot of work and effort to that, and he's a distinguished professor in, in human rights law, so he's the perfect person to write this. It certainly cut through with some, but I think one of the one of the challenges with much of science is that we're often in our own disciplines, our own silos. These kind of legal arguments sometimes they're waved away. But I think it's crucial. I think it's really crucial, and I think he makes a really important point. One reflection I've had, and I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that we're constantly being fed the story of corporate personhood through, for example corporate social responsibility language through the language of partnership or of self-regulation. All these terms, they create this illusion that companies have moral agency like we do, that they can make moral choices about right or wrong like we do. But of course, these are for-profit companies, right? They can't do that. So I think there's something powerful in how discourse is being shaped continuously to reinforce this idea that these companies have moral agency when they really don't. It's important to make this a political campaign issue, make uh, candidates running for public office take their stand. Are corporations equal to human beings? One might add that this was a contrivance of a case in 1886 by the Supreme Court, and the justices had a scribe. In those days, they would write the opinion down in the head notes. The scribe happened to be a former railroad attorney, and the case involved a railroad in California as to whether taxation of the railroad was unequal protection of the laws compared to taxation of regular people. And the justices denied that they reported the case this way. They said, we did not address the issue of corporate personhood under our 14th Amendment, equal protection, provisions of 14th Amendment. So it was basically a fraud by the scribe. That didn't stop the subsequent Supreme Court cases from elaborating one equal decision between corporations and people after another. 
until they reach the almost maximum equality with real human beings under our Constitution, which doesn't mention corporation or company once in the entire Constitution, just references persons. So now about the only exception to equal rights of corporations with individuals is they can't plead the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. So it just continues with the advocacy of these mischievous corporate law firms developing one theory after another. So this leads to an interesting suggestion. Since the whole is often greater than the sum of its parts, have you ever thought of organizing all these contributors into a professional association? There are all kinds of professional associations of subspecialties in medicine and law, like Bankruptcy Lawyer Association. Have you ever thought of organizing them? Are they susceptible to being organized? You talk a lot about getting over silos here, because they can speak with a stronger voice. This book should have been all over the media in the United States, and it's unfortunately being ignored for the most part. Have you or your colleagues thought of organizing so you can have conferences, you can put out statements, you can testify, or they're not ready to go that far? They're concerned contributors, but they haven't reached that level of urgent seriousness that their own studies might call for. Well, I think many of them have in different ways and in some ways have been a lot a lot braver than I would ever be. It's certainly not something that's originating just from us as editors. There's actually now a department within the World Health Organization that focuses on social um, commercial and economic determinants of health and it's organizing global events and, and coordinating increasing numbers of scholars and activists to try and think about these issues. There are, if you take the example of infant formula marketing, there's a series out this week in The Lancet, you know, one of the leading medical journals worldwide that explicitly acknowledges the role of infant formula companies in continuing to shape norms and uh, consumption globally. So I think there is an increasing, there's an increasing amount of cohesion in the scientific community that these are important issues and there are global networks. There's a governance for ethics and public health network that's composed of a lot of researchers from all over the world. So there are these networks forming and I think that's a good sign. The problem I think is that these ideas have to, as you say, move into public discourse, right? They have to get wider coverage and they have to penetrate into, into public opinion. And part of the problem is what we call the pollution of discourse. It's the idea that all these companies for their own reasons are feeding into discourse, right? With narratives of individual responsibility or how complex it all is, or the, you know, the apocalyptic alternatives, if we regulate them in terms of economic development or even civil rights. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, right? That each of these companies does it for their own ends. Exxon says that the science around climate change is incomplete and or regulators are flawed. A pesticide company says the WHO is flawed and the science is incomplete about its links to cancer. And these all have cumulative effects, right? The sum is greater than individual parts. These collectively pollute our discourse, just like companies might pollute our environment. So it's a very powerful force to try and overcome. Well, in, in some of your writings in this book, you 
attribute the motivation, obviously, to the profit motive, profit motive, the drive for more sales, more profits, more executive compensation, and that creates a lot of damage and harm. But you also say that the profit motive has often created some good products because of regulation. You want to give that some examples? Yeah. So the best way to think about this, I think, is to look at cross-country comparisons, right? And to take an example that might be most relevant, we could look at the pharmaceutical industry or the medical device industry. In the US, that industry has been gifted extraordinary power and almost unique among countries globally, it is able to exert that power, both in terms of lobbying, in terms of setting prices, in terms of holding sway over discussions about changes to the system through political advertising, but also through patent protections. And just the kind of, you, you talked before about knowing the rules of the game. And this is, this is an example of an industry that knows the rule of the game very well and exploits it massively in the US, including through direct advertising to patients. Almost all of that is, is just simply not allowed in a country like the UK. You know, the pharmaceutical industry is much more tightly regulated. It can't market to consumers. Prices for medicines are negotiated nationally. They have to meet a cost effectiveness threshold. The industry can only input in a certain place. So the same industry, because it's been so much more tightly constrained, costs the UK a lot less money. And the UK enjoys longer life expectancy than the US and better health outcomes along a whole range of conditions, right? So you can mm -hmm. see how an industry, if constrained in the right way, can be of greater benefit than it might otherwise be. But equally, if left unrestrained, it can be quite damaging. Well, Amory Lovins, the early advocate of renewable energy and opponent of nuclear power, once said quite incisively, Markets make good servants, but bad masters. <laughs> and of course, markets is another name for corporate marketing. You wind up this book with a what you call a research and translational agenda. Could you please outline the agenda briefly? I'll do my best. So the, the purpose of the end of the book was to look forward and think, what is the implication of all these different strands of evidence and all these different contributions. And these are just the tip of the iceberg of the wider literature. And it's to say that, well, we know enough to start to influence how we engage with these corporations, how we regulate them individually and collectively. We know enough that we can't predict the kind of actions they might engage in if their profits are threatened, if there's risk of regulation. We also talk about we don't need necessarily to insist on an all or nothing approaches. There's scope for radical incrementalism. There's scope to improve all the time on the system as it is now. And we also talk about how there's a risk of this becoming just another academic silo, another discipline with groups of researchers who pat themselves on the back and say, we conduct research on commercial drivers of ill health. Aren't we good? We meet in conferences, we swap papers and citations, and that's the end of it. And we talk about how this research needs to translate into the real world. It needs to be impactful. And that's kind of a responsibility that science has generally, but we in particular have to take very, very seriously. This is a good first start. We look forward to additional expansions of what you've just said with empirical rigor. 
because the planet is running out of time, not just climate disruption, but expanding pandemics, ravaging of land, forest, elected dictatorships, you name it. David? Yes, thank you. Following through on this theme, in America, children are brainwashed that government is the enemy. The nanny state is making all of us weak. Has the anti-government propaganda spread to Europe the way it has in the United States? Has it spread to the UK? And how do we teach children that for better or worse, the only solution to all our problems is government? But David, these giant corporations take over the government. That's what we call corporate socialism or the corporate state that we've talked about over the years on this program. Yeah, these are really big questions. I think on the topic of the nanny state kind of rhetoric, it absolutely has spread to the UK and has been a pivotal feature in, in recent debates. And it does permeate into Europe, although perhaps to a lesser extent. But you see very similar think tanks and organizations with similarly, you know, what Jane Mayer has called dark money sources that make similar ideological arguments about the elevation of individual choice the dangers of regulation and regulatory overreach and you know the arguing that much public health evidence for example is junk science and can't be trusted and so on so you do see that although not probably to the extent that it has really historically occurred in the US i think when it comes to how do you protect children and how to change this mindset like we said before part of this is about influencing public discourse in really meaningful ways but I do think there's value in learning from counter-marketing. You know, we've had examples of counter-marketing campaigns and initiatives around, say, the tobacco industry. Why can't we have counter-marketing campaigns that more generally speak to the role of, of us as citizens in society and frame corporate power as something that children can actually bear witness to, expose and push back against, you know? I think... Ultimately, these are structural problems that require structural solutions. But in the meantime, there may be ways in which we can reduce influence along the way. We're out of time, unfortunately. We've been talking with Dr. Nathan Manny from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He also teaches at the Boston University School of Public Health. The book is called The Commercial Determinants of Health. You want to read it little at a time, tremendously eye-opening, very well footnoted and documented, published by Oxford University Press. You can reach Oxford University Press at oup.com. It's oup.com. Are you willing to give some virtual lectures around the country if people want to invite you to speak to high school or college or citizen group gatherings? Oh, I'd be honored. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And good luck. Stay with it. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Dr. Nason Mani. We will link to his book, The Commercial Determinants of Health, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. When we come back, Chris Hedges is going to tell us what he means by the term woke imperialism. And Ralph has some comments about the State of the Union address. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. 
From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, February 10, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The manufacturer of a brand of over-the-counter eye drops said that it was recalling the product, Esri Care Artificial Tears, after it was linked to a drug-resistant bacteria strain that has caused at least one person's death and vision loss in five others. That's according to a report in the New York Times. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advised people to stop using the eye drops as the agency and investigates an outbreak of a strain of bacteria which can cause infections in the blood, lungs, and other parts of the body. This strain of bacteria had never been identified in the United States before the current outbreak. The bacteria strain had been found in 55 people in 12 states. The agency said the infections had caused one death, vision loss in five of 11 people who had eye infections, and some hospitalizations. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph and the rest of the team. What does woke imperialism mean? Let's ask Chris Hedges. David? Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. He is the host of the Chris Hedges Report and is a prolific author. His most recent book is The Greatest Evil is War. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Chris Thank Hedges. you. Thanks for having me. Well, Chris, you just unleashed a thunderbolt called Woke Imperialism on your substack, which is creating considerable reaction. I want to read to our listeners the setup paragraph, and then I want you to go and be very specific, because you make a very important argument, and it's all in the details. Here's what you say, quote, the militarists, corporatists, oligarchs, politicians, academics, and media conglomerates champion identity politics and diversity because it does nothing to address the systemic injustices or the scourge of permanent war that plague the U.S. It is an advertising gimmick, a brand used to mask mounting social inequality and imperial folly. It busies liberals and the educated with a boutique activism, which is not only ineffectual, but exacerbates the divide between the privileged and a working class in deep economic distress. The haves scold the have-nots for their bad manners, racism, linguistic insensitivity, and garishness, while ignoring the root causes of their economic distress. The oligarchs could not be happier, end quote. And that's what you call woke imperialism. And I'm sure our listeners are saying, what does he mean by that specifically? Give some examples. Political correctness, this hypersensitivity to systemic injustices and prejudices, especially those around ethnic, racial, or sexual minorities, but it's a largely linguistic concern. It's not actually concerned with ameliorating the social and economic injustices which plague these groups. And as you know, later on in the article, I kind of list the dire economic situation faced by people of color, in particular blacks in the United States. And the corporatists and even the Pentagon, of course, is now recruiting transgender soldiers. They love it because it essentially gives them a kind of veneer of inclusiveness and diversity and sensitivity while they continue 
in the case of Wall Street, to plunder and loot the nation, and in the case of the military-industrial complex, to carry out one military fiasco after another, not to mention the fact the resources over $850 billion a year. Chris, you give other examples where elevating to CEO status or high office of minorities, women, people who are, have been usually excluded, and it doesn't make any difference in terms of the organizations they're running. Why don't you give some examples? Well, I open with the murder of Nichols by the five black Memphis police officers. And not only are the former officers black, but the city's police department is headed by a black woman. None of this, of course, helped Nichols, who just became a victim of another modern-day police lynching. And then in the third paragraph, I kind of go through. I begin with Charles Curtis. He was the first Native American vice president, but he pushed through legislation mandating assimilation and the revoking of tribal land titles. Clarence Thomas, who opposes affirmative action. Victoria Newland used to work for Dick Cheney when he was vice president and now works for Biden. I mean, just, just kind of mutates from one Democratic to Republican to Democratic administration as a war hawk, a cheerleader for the wars in the Middle East. Uh, she's now in the State Department. Does Lloyd Austin, who's an African-American, and now the Secretary of Defense, has this done anything to ameliorate permanent war? You know, is social inequality and the surveillance state somehow better because the CEO of Google and Alphabet is of Indian born, he's born in India, of Indian descent. We have a woman who is the CEO of Northrop Grumman, another who's the CEO of General Dynamics, and then a figure like Janet Yellen, who openly promotes increasing unemployment, and this is a quote, quote unquote, job insecurity, to lower inflation as the Secretary of the Treasury. And it's just celebrated not just in the political and economic arena, but also in the entertainment arena. So I mentioned Catherine Bigelow who made the movie Zero Dark Thirty, which was just agitprop for the CIA. So these people are selected to essentially provide an appealing face to a system that carries out tremendous cruelty and imparts tremendous suffering on the very people these you know women or people of color claim to represent. So they're not actually serving their communities. They're serving the system. And it's, a, it's this kind of species of corporate colonialism. I think it's kind of what it's modeled after. So you had all sorts of people, Papa Doc and Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua and Mobutu, Sesi Seiko in the Congo and the Shah in Iran. They would all do the dirty work while allowing large corporations, whether it was United Fruit or, or British Colonial petroleum and Iran or whatever, to, to loot the country. Let's examine your argument here. Years ago when I was at Harvard Law School, we were among the very few people who were pushing for more admissions for women and Negroes, which is what African-Americans were called. And the argument that we made was twofold. Not only is it important to give all people an opportunity to scale the ladder of success and position as defined in the society. But if you give minorities, if you give women that kind of equal opportunity, they're going to make a difference because they're more sensitive to certain kinds of injustices that the male dominant clique ignores. For example, there are far more unnecessary operations on women when the medical profession was 95% 
men than is the case today. So someone might say, okay, Chris Hedges, you're saying that putting these people in positions of power does not change the power structure. There was a woman who was the CEO of Lockheed Martin, I can't remember her name, for several years until recently. It didn't affect anything Lockheed Martin was doing in terms of ripping off the government, boondoggle of F-35, never enough weapon systems for the taxpayer to pay, all kinds of waste and cost overruns, didn't make any difference. So someone may say, Chris Hedges, why are you putting a bigger moral burden on these people? Why not just recognize they should have an equal opportunity and not say, you got to do things differently, better, and more just than your male counterparts that you've replaced at the top of these organizations? Well, I mean, I certainly agree with you. Not only should these people be included, but I, in the case, I support reparations, of course, for black Americans. But we have to remember that it's the white power structure that selects who goes out. I mean, Biden was a huge champion of Clarence Thomas, who's nowhere near Thurgood Marshall. So you have all sorts of women and people of color who do have that sensitivity, but they're not people that the power system is going to incorporate into their structures. I, as you know, went to, you went to Harvard Law School, I went to Harvard Divinity School, but in 1970 at Harvard Divinity School, there were no black professors and black students in protest occupied the president's office. And so that pressured the Divinity School to interview. And, and one of the people they interviewed was James Cone. I think you can argue was certainly the greatest theologian of his generation, you know, probably the greatest theologian in America since Reinhold Niebuhr. Well, Cohn came for a meeting to Cambridge, but the white power structure had no intention of offering someone like James Cohn, that was fiercely independent as well as being brilliant, that job. The job was given to a very pliable African-American candidate who had never written a book. He just finished his PhD. In fact, his entire tenure at Harvard for three decades, he never did write a book. So there's a kind of classic example. I mean, those of us who come out of theological training, it should be highly embarrassing that you would take the most important theologian of his generation and essentially not hire him to hire. But they wanted, they wanted a non-entity, but they wanted a black face that would be malleable. They didn't want James Cohn. So that's kind of the problem. People who have that streak of independence, and I would argue even that brilliance, they're too much of a threat. And to climb within the power structure, you have to do the bidding. I mean, it was major, then major Colin Powell, who boosted his career in the army significantly when he covered up, he wrote the report that covered up the 1968 massacre of 500 civilians at Mealai. I mentioned in the column Barack Obama. Barack Obama was a product of the Chicago political machine, one of the dirtiest and most corrupt in the country. And in order to achieve political prominence and, and ensure his election to the presidency, he threw under the bus Jeremiah Wright, another prophetic and powerful voice. So yeah, those voices are there. The, the many of these people have a strong commitment to their communities and to the oppressed, but they're not the people who the privileged or the ruling class is going to adopt and promote. What did Cornell West call Obama? He supported well, I, Obama's campaign in 2008, yeah, he, he, went he all did. over the country. Yes, he did. Uh, I think he did over 60 events for Obama and felt justifiably portrayed when, as soon as Obama took power, he brought in the big bankers and Larry Summers and all of these 
Robert Wuba and all these figures who had orchestrated the orchestrated the 2008 crash largely. And Cornell called Obama black mascot for Wall Street. So that's what I'm writing about. I to, to put a in a case of Obama a black face on imperial projects and on bailing out the banks and everything else. Of course, Obama massively expanded the drone warfare. His assault on civil liberties was worse than that carried out by George W. Bush. They function as a brand. They, in fact, you know, Obama, after he won, he won Advertising Ages Award, Marketer of the Year, because the advertising professionals understood exactly what he'd done. You quote Glenn Ford, the late Glenn Ford, as noting this phenomena you're condemning early on, years ago. He was head of the Black Agenda Report. What was he saying? Yeah, Glenn, you know, understood this very early. And the quote in the story is, this is Glenn, it's an insult to the organized movements of people these institutions claim to want to include. These institutions write the script. It's their drama. They choose the actors, whether black, brown, yellow, red faces they want. And he called these promoters of identity politics representationalists, people who want to see black people represented in various sectors of society, black scientists, black movie stars, black scholars at Harvard. But as Glenn points out, it's just representation. It doesn't change the power structure at all. You say, quote, diversity is important, but diversity when devoid of a political agenda that fights the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed is window dressing. It's about incorporating a tiny segment of those marginalized by society into unjust structures to perpetuate them, end quote. Are you saying that the white power structure is picking the wrong minorities and women, or are you saying that they're picking minorities and women who you think should make a difference once they ascend to the top of the organization? My earlier point, are you putting a, a greater moral obligation on them? No, they pick those who are pliable. And if they're not pliable, they're gotten rid of. There are no shortage of people of color and women who are fighting systems of injustice, but they're not the people who get selected. Look at the vast difference between Thurgood Marshall, who was real and who spent his life fighting on behalf of disenfranchised African-Americans and Clarence Thomas. And what's your view of the Black Caucus here in Congress? Well, they've gone the same way as the Progressive Caucus. They've largely surrendered for political expediency and to salvage their own careers. Glenn Ford used to call them the black misleadership class. So the rules are very strict. And if you want to keep your seat in Congress, you better dance to the tune they play. And if you don't, you won't keep your seat. You can ask Dennis Kucinich as the Democrats redistrict his district in Ohio to get him out of the House. That was a Democratic initiative. We're talking with Chris Hedges, who just authored a thunderbolt of an article, Woke Imperialism. I thought the end of your article was quite compelling. You spend quite a bit of time with inmates in prisons in New Jersey as a volunteer, and you ended with this story. Yeah, so I actually teach in the college degree program through Rutgers University. And a few years ago, I helped 28 students in a maximum security prison write a play called Caged about their lives. And the play ended up running for a month at the Passage Theater in Trenton, sold out almost every night. It was subsequently published by Haymarket Books. But the 28 students in that class insisted unanimously that the corrections officer that was written into the play not be white. That was too easy. And that allowed people to simplify and mask 
the oppressive apparatus of banks, corporations, police, courts, and the prison system, all of which make diversity ours. And, and they un understood probably better than most because they're victims of it, that these systems of internal exploitation and oppression are what have to be targeted and dismantled. It doesn't matter who they employ. Well, let's open this up, David. Chris, you brought up Jeremiah Wright, who Obama threw under the bus. Jeremiah Wright, first name Jeremiah. How culpable are America's religious leaders for not letting loose with Jeremiah's? Where are the prophets, the Jeremiah's? Where's the fire and brimstone telling Americans to repent for what we're doing to people overseas and to ourselves? Well, that was Jerry. I mean, and nobody did it with more brilliance or more eloquence. And I mean, people should listen to him. He's stunning and prophetic. And of course, as, as soon as he became a liability, he had not only married Barack and Michelle Obama, but I know Jerry's a friend of mine, he had mentored Obama from the moment he landed in Chicago. Obama knew very little about the African-American experience. He was raised in a white household in Hawaii. And in many ways, he became a kind of surrogate son. And that's why Jerry was just also hurt on a very personal level. He invested a lot of time in Obama. But as Obama rose within the Chicago political machine, to Jerry's dismay, any political position that might hinder Obama's advancement, Obama shed. And as Jerry said to me once, you know, there's a word for people like that. So they're there, but they're not only locked out the mainstream, but they're, if they get any kind of prominence, and as Jerry did during the campaign, they're demonized and attacked. Well, we're unfortunately out of time. We've been talking with Chris Hedges, former prize-winning New York Times correspondent, more than a foreign correspondent. He was a war correspondent in some of the most violent conflicts of those years, and the author, most recently, of the book, War is the Greatest Evil. And another one of his books, listeners, you might want to read, which I accuse Chris of understating, his title of his book is the death of the liberal class, and it was prescient when it came out, and the liberal class has further confirmed Chris's foresight. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Ralph. We've been speaking with Chris Hedges. We will link to his work at ralphnativeradiohour.com. And now for a final word. Ralph, in terms of just style, I thought Joe Biden did a pretty good job for the State of the Union. Your thoughts? Well, I have to disagree, partly. It was full of good recommendations that the Republicans have been blocking, environmental, climate, child tax extension, protection of workers, minimum wage. He made all the lists, but it was too palsy-wellsy. That is, a good many of the 38 million people who apparently watched or listened to Joe Biden's State of the Union speech could miss the fact that the reason why he was pressing forward on this huge list of improvements for the American people is that the GOP is blocking it. He didn't make that clear at all. He wanted to talk bipartisan, palsy-walsy, and so forth. And he's done that again and again in the speeches that he's made. Second, he didn't spend enough time on climate disruption. It was almost a throwaway paragraph, and he should have been much more pointed on that in addition to his warning about what could this mean to the globe? I was looking for more specifics. And thirdly, he called Nancy Pelosi the greatest 
House Speaker in American history. Well, she only lost the last five out of seven congressional races starting in 2010, 12, 14, 16, four losses. She got in in 2018, just squeaked by in 2020, and lost against the worst Republican Party in history in 2022. I don't know how that qualifies as being the greatest speaker in House of Representatives history. I want to thank our guests again, Dr. Nason Mani and Chris Hedges. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, and we've got a new feature in The Wrap-Up, so tune into that. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel, and for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We'll pick some standout comments, so be sure to tune in next week. You may hear Ralph's response. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. It was a great program. I just have a little suggestion for listeners. Next time you meet someone, instead of saying, how are you, why don't you ask, how's your civic life? Thank you.